0: I invite you to take a Bible and again uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's page 958 in these Bibles in the pews. Somebody told me they opened their Bible, the pew Bible, last week. Said uh, It fell open to the very page you were preaching from. I said, that's because for six months I've been in this same area, on these same pages, so it seems. Uh, today uh, we're dealing with the first half of chapter 11. Last week we looked at the second half because our reasoning was that we were observing the Lord's Supper last week, and that's what the passage was about. So I uh, started at the back, and now we'll look at the first part. Of what probably is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, definitely the most difficult passage to apply today in 1 Corinthians. And with that um, exciting introduction, now uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word. Hear God's Word beginning in verse 2. Just, just a reminder, Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months. He'd led people to Christ. He'd established a church there. And he moved on. He's in Ephesus. He's writing back, back to them, answering some questions they had sent to him and dealing with some issues that he had heard about. And uh, so these are things that were happening back in the church, though he is not present with them hear God's word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head." Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us you give your word for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we ask now that you would use it toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever told someone that you believed something strictly because it's in the Bible, and then they looked at you with a combination of surprise and bewilderment? I have. I think Amy Orr Ewing is right when she wrote, when it comes to talking about the Bible, people have all kinds of questions and suspicions. It's very typical that people think of the Bible as some collection of strange mystical writings which are impossible to understand, and if we do understand them, they're even frightening. Or they see religious people as, as using the Bible just to shore up our own causes, and, and therefore it can be interpreted to mean whatever a particular person or group of people want it to mean. I was sitting with a man at lunch at the Rotary Club that meets here at our church uh, some time ago, and he just blurted out, he said, you can take that old ancient book and make it mean anything you want to. The bigger underlying question is whether words and text can have any inherent meaning at all. That is the popular view today, that words can't have meaning, they have no inherent meaning, it's all assigned meaning." And so we have to ask, does it really all come down to a matter of opinion where every interpretation is equally valid? Well, one problem with such is that words are used to try to explain that position. The professor who tells you that every interpretation is equally valid will give you an F on that exam if you don't subscribe to his or her interpretation Sometimes when people say, you don't take the Bible literally, do you? It's for a number of reasons, but one is because of the times we live in with terrorism. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you see, after 9-11 and the rise of the new atheists with Richard Dawkins and, and a number of others, skeptics said, look, if people believe their holy books, this is the kind of action you give. This is the kind of danger it produces. And so they believe that one of the craziest and misguided things a person can do is to take a religious book literally. But it's important to remember that it's not the act of believing what a book says or taking it literally that is necessarily dangerous. The danger is determined by the content of the book. What will we find when we read it? Does the book incite violence? Does it lend itself to a dangerous use? So it cannot be inherently evil to believe that what any book says is dangerous in and of itself. It depends on the message. But back to the question. Should we take the Bible literally? G.K. Chesterton was asked that question, and in typical British wit, he replied... Well, the Bible says Herod is a fox. That does not mean he has a bushy tail and pointy ears. It also says Jesus is the door, but that does not mean that he is wooden and flat and swings on hinges. So a reader, what he was getting at, is a reader of any literature has the responsibility to participate in the process of how do I read this literature. We have to ask about the author's intention. What was the historical context in which this was written? What is my own cultural context from which I am interpreting it? And with the Bible, it's especially important, because if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, there were approximately 40 different authors, and it was written over a period of 1,500 years. Those authors included kings, shepherds, fishermen, poets, Prophets, a tax collector, physician, those who were highly educated, and those who had minimal education. The Bible contains a variety of genres of literature. There is historical narrative. There is poetry. There is prophecy. There is proverb. There is parable. There are didactic or teaching passages that are doctrinal. And when you approach any genre of literature, you use different rules of interpretation. For example, you say, okay, well, uh, you say you take the Bible to be true. Yes. Well, when Psalm says God walks on the wings of the wind, does that mean his feet are up there on the wind or in the clouds walking? No, that's not what I mean. That's not what the author meant of the Psalm. He meant... God is so majestic that we envision him as walking on the wings of the wind. How do do you arrive at that? Because that's poetry. The Psalms are poetry, and you don't interpret poetry like you do the book of Romans or the book of Matthew. So we also have to question or ask the question of the cultural settings between the New Testament times and now. Uh, this year, this place, at this time. When we are given instruction in the Bible, we have to ask, was it just for that time period and those people in Corinth, in this case, or was the intent to be a universal truth or principle that's to be observed through all of time by all people? You see the vitalness of these questions? Do you wrestle with these? I'd Deal with these on a regular basis in talking to people about how to understand the Bible. Some groups of Christians want to view all scriptural scripture as principle, universal truth, every verse binding on all people for all ages. Some others take heavily local custom uh, of that day. But both positions have problems. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to do ministry, to evangelize, and to teach, and to preach, and even to heal the sick. And he says, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Now, if we just take that as a wooden interpretation, if we can interpret that woodenly, we would say, well, preachers shouldn't be wearing any shoes up here. I should be preaching barefooted. But we know what Christ was saying to them is God will provide for you as you go. You don't need to pack your bags. God will take care of you and he will provide you with what you need. So how do we deal then with scripture? When it comes to difficult questions of applying first century culture with 21st century America, the passage before us this morning is perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. It has to do with coverings of head, head coverings for men and women who pray and prophesy in the church. The spheres being addressed here are family and church. It's not all of society, it's family and church. Sometimes it's the same word, but depending on the Bible in front of you, this one says wife. The same word can mean woman. The ESV used "why," but that's helpful because it meant in church and in the home. So, R.C. Scroll says as we approach this passage, we have four options on how to interpret it. The first option, what is said here was entirely custom of that day. Therefore, it has no relevance for us today. The veil was a customary local headgear. And the uncovering of the head reflected a local sign of prostitution. I'll say more about that in a moment. And so the sign of a woman subordinating herself to the man is a Jewish custom, and it is outmoded in light of overall teaching of the New Testament. Since we live in a different culture, it's no longer necessary for a woman to cover her head uh, when there's prayer with a veil. So that's the first position, the first approach to the passage is that it was entirely custom for the first century in Corinth. Second position, it is entirely principle. In this case, everything in the passage is to be regarded as a culturally transcending principle, and that would mean by way of application that when we gather as a local church, women must be submissive to men during prayer. Women must always give a sign of that submission by covering their heads. And women must cover their heads with a veil as the only appropriate sign. It can't be a hat. It can't be anything like that. It's got to be a veil. Third position is that the passage is part principle and part custom. In this approach, part of the passage is regarded as principle and therefore binding for all people and all of time. And part is seen as custom that's no longer binding. And so the principle is female submission in the church, that that is transcultural, that it, it crosses all cultural boundaries, but the means of expressing that submission, you know, which in that case was covering the head with a veil, is customary and may be changed according to the society of the day. The fourth approach is that it's partly principle. Y'all still with me? I know you're not writing these down. I, I probably should have given out an outline. But that requires prior preparation. And I'm usually Saturday night finishing. But I started last Monday morning. And after I read it for the first time, you know, with the first words out of my mouth, you have got to be kidding me. I'm going to have a sermon on this by, by next Sunday. It is partly principle. In this option, the principle of female submission and the symbolic act of covering the head are perpetual. But the article of covering may vary from culture to culture. So in one church, say in Eastern Europe the veil may be replaced with a babushka. Or somewhere else, it may be a hat. I noticed some women at the first service had sunglasses on top of their heads, so maybe that would be it, too. I I can promise you I I use about 10 commentaries on 1 Corinthians. Some are the classic commentaries, some are newer, and no one had a final answer. They all started off saying this is a very, very complex but there are some conclusions. Don't get me wrong. It's not as though let's look at it and then walk away saying, well, this is just impossible to even begin to understand. No, we can understand a lot of it. It's just to have a final word, like I know exactly what everything here means and should be applied. You're not going to get that from here this morning. There's no simple answer. These are complex issues. So let's, let's approach this text. What do we make of it? Well, first of all, you got to remember that the Christian faith brought freedom And hope to women and children and slaves. It taught that all people, regardless of race or sex, were equal before their Creator, and that all believers were one in Christ. That's Galatians three twenty-eight. And so, the local church—the church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Philippi—the local church was perhaps the only assembly, the only fellowship in the entire Roman Empire that welcomed all people, regardless of nationality, or social status, or sex, or economic position. It welcomed everyone, and that was unique. There was no other, quote, institution, to use that word, in the Roman Empire. And so apparently, though this is not the main point of the passage, Paul does not here forbid women from praying or prophesying. Now, the word prophecy then meant something very different from now. We hear the word prophesy and we think future teller. In 100 years this will happen, or in 10 years this will happen. That was not it. It was to have a word from God. It was a word of Scripture. Now, it wasn't the same as preaching. The preacher studied the word and prepared the message and so forth. And so the New Testament does not permit women officers, but women in the early church who had the gift of prophecy, apparently in some contexts were allowed to use it. They were also permitted to pray in the public meetings. However, they were not permitted. This is the point. This is the point right here. They were were not permitted to usurp the authority of the men who were to lead. Or they were not permitted, they were also not permitted to judge the messages of the other prophets. We find that in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Now, in Eastern society at that time, and still to a large extent today, there were very strict rules of etiquette for women in public. And in those days, for a woman to go out in public with her hair, with no head covering, with her hair hanging down, was a sign that she was a prostitute. And that was true with the temple prostitutes in Corinth and others. And so the women, as they went outside, would typically wear a sort of shawl, not, necessarily, not what we see in the Islamic world today covering their face, but at least the top of their head. And that symbolized her submission and her purity. And so for the Christian women in the church to appear in public without any covering of the head, let alone to pray and to to share the word, was borderline of being blasphemous. So it's loaded with cultural overtones. There's a principle underneath it. Now, Paul sought to restore order back to the Corinthian church by reminding the Corinthians that God had made a difference between men and women, that each has a proper place in God's economy. And so there were also appropriate customs that symbolized these relationships and reminded both men and women of their places in God's economy. Paul did not say or even hint at that difference, meaning inequality or Deficiency or inferiority, anything like that. But if there's to be peace in the church, just as in the home, there must be some kind of order. So he bases his argument on three things. First, on redemption. We're going to look at that briefly. And then he bases it on creation. And then he bases it on nature. Verses 3 to 7 deal with redemption. I won't go back and reread all the verses. But he, he does say in verse 3... But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is every is God. Now, where do we get the whole idea of of submission and headship throughout society? It comes from God himself. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible or have never attended church, you'll hear Christians use the term, Trinity. Now, if you go to look that up in the Bible, you won't find it. It's not there. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, though the teaching about the Trinity is in the Bible. And essentially it says, and this is very simple, that God is, is, is one, and yet he exists as three persons. He doesn't morph into one person, and in another time morph into this person. Uh, he, these are not different states, like one state is a Son, one state is a Spirit, one state is the Father. No, one being... Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was speaking with a college student once, and he adamantly said, I do not think that God wants us to believe anything we cannot understand. Now, we were discussing something like infant baptism or predestination. And I stopped and I said, what about the Trinity? Let's start with God himself. How can God be three in one at the same time? We can't understand that. We can't fully understand it. We accept it by faith from what we see taught in the Bible. But how? One and three, same time. I had the privilege to teach some international students a few years ago. Uh, introduction to the Christian faith. Almost 50 lessons, starting with Genesis, going through the book of Revelation. I took R.C. Sproul's two volumes, Dust of Glory, and at a computer, paraphrased those onto a fifth grade level. And we started, and the first real lesson was on creation. And we started there with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And these were students had no background from the Bible, none. Most, at best, would be agnostic, if not atheistic. And uh, so they were hearing this for the first time, and I was having the privilege, the great high privilege, to teach it for the first time. I mean, that was, that was meaningful to me. And so I asked them, and there were about nine students there, I said, when it says, let us make man in our image, who do you think the us is referring to? Silence. And then one said, the animals? I said, no, good good answer, but no, it wasn't the animals. So I went up to the board and wrote, Trinity, God equal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One, one being three persons. And their eyes, I just watched their eyes get like this. And the translator's explaining that. And then one of them spoke up. There was silence, and one said, does he have three heads? <laughs> and, then I, and it was serious, a serious question. And then I said, it's going to get worse. He has no body. And they started laughing. Like, is this a school? This is science fiction. Who that they really looked at each other and laughed like, you've got to be kidding me, this is school in America? And you're talking like this? This is, this is nuts. Well, so we often take this for granted. But here is where submission and leadership come from. The person of God, the being of God himself and those persons. what I mean. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He mentions here that Christ, the Son, is under the Father, God the Father. Sometimes, God the Father, we see, is going to be under the Son in the standpoint, and from the standpoint, they said, at the end of time, he's going to set Christ up so that all things are subject to him. Sometimes, Christ was led by the Holy Spirit. At other times, the Holy Spirit was sent out by the Son. So you see, within this Godhead that's totally equal in substance and in being, the roles change to a certain degree at different times that different persons within the trinity at various times submit to one another so the point is it's not an issue of who's better or who's more important it's a question of economy of division of effort so he he starts off by talking about that that we should grasp that and and then he says there's a definite order of headship in the church the father's the head over christ christ is the head of the man the man is the head of the woman and and then Christ is, is subject to God. But keeping Keep in mind now that Paul's writing about the relationship with the local assembly, the church, not the world at large. Here's what I mean. You can be an, an elder in this church. Here's a man who's an elder in this church on what we call our board of elders, called a session. And they have authority in this local church. And there may be a woman that is in submission as in her membership vows, like all of our membership vows, do you promise to submission to the government and discipline of the church. And so she may say, well, I don't like that decision, but I'm going to go along with it because those are the people in authority, and I'll follow that. Now, church may end, and the next day, one of the elders may go to work, and guess who his boss is? The woman. There's no conflict there. What this is talking about is within the family and within the church. It's not talking about within society. It's not talking about who can can, uh, be president or who can run a company, or who can be CEO of something. That, that is not what this is addressing. It's family, and it's, um, it's the church. Our policeman out there is a policewoman. She's got authority. If I'm getting across the road, and she says, don't, nope, you stand right there, I'm not going to say, I'm a man, and you're a woman. You're not supposed to. No. You get the idea. Am I may- I'm, I'm belaboring a point, I think, because I'm getting tired of hearing it. Let's, let's move on, then, to the next one. The the important fact here is both men and women are to honor the Lord by respecting the positions they have, and in that case, the symbols of headship, which was hair, had to deal with hair and, and head covering. So whenever he says a woman prays or prophesies in the assembly, she must either have long hair or must wear some kind of covering over it. But the man should have short hair and not wear any covering. Now, this would have been a radical change for Paul because he was Jewish. And in the synagogue, the Jewish men wear a cap. So that's what he would have grown up with. But he's saying now, no, a man should not cover his head. The man honors his head, Christ, by being uncovered. While the woman honors her head, the man, in that case, by having a covering. She's showing her submission both to God and to the man. So the Corinthian women who appeared in the assembly without head covering were actually putting themselves on the low level of appearing as prostitutes. And the prostitutes, as I mentioned, did not wear head coverings in public. Their hairstyle basically was an advertisement. And Paul says if you're going, I, I don't know which verse we're on, the one where he says, if you're going to abandon the covering, then why not cut off all your hair? What verse is that? I lost it. Oh, verse, uh, verse five. Since the same as if her head were shaven. What's he talking about there? In Jewish law, if a woman was committed, uh, convicted of committing adultery, they shaved her hair off. It was, a public, it was like a scarlet letter. Uh, so he's saying, if you're going to go in and not cover your head, you might as well just shave it off. It's a it's a comment to make a point. Um, ooh. Boy, I'd love to say I'm out of time. <laughs> and I am, but I've got to keep going, okay? Hang with me just so I don't have much more. So his first argument is in redemption. The second one's in creation, verses 8 to 12. Um He's talking there about the order of God's creation, that, that man was created first and the woman was created from the man. It does not imply inferiority. Uh, the man and the woman are spiritually one in the Lord. And then in verse in verse 10, he does something that's a really a curveball. He mentions angels. Why did Paul mention angels in this verse? Well, the best I could find, and it's not conclusive is that he was arguing from the facts of creation and the angels were part of the the act of creation. The angels show respect when they worship God. Isaiah tells us they cover their faces when they worship God. In some special way, according to Ephesians 3 and 1 Peter chapter 1, the angels share in the public worship of the church and learn from the church. So I have no—somebody asked me about this after the first service. I have no idea, but in some way, there is angelic involvement with the corporate worship of God in the local church. Third point, he argues from nature, verses 13 to 15, and it has to do with the length of hair. Nowhere does the Bible tell us how long long is. Okay? It's just relative to one or the other. The women's is longer. Maybe theirs was down to their waist and a man's was down to his shoulder. We aren't told, but there was a distinction. We do know that in the Roman world and with the Greeks and with the Jews, except for Nazarites, they had this custom that women women had longer hair than men. The Bible simply states there ought to be a noticeable difference between the length of the man's hair and the woman's hair so that there's no confusion about the sexes. It's saying that it's shameful for a man to look like a woman or a woman to look like a man. The woman's long hair is her glorious, Paul says. It's given to her instead of a covering. That's the literal translation. This long hair. We understand, in other words, if local custom does not dictate a head covering, then long hair can be that covering. Warren Weersby, who wrote a commentary and traveled all over the world preaching and teaching the Bible, he said, In my ministry in different parts of the world, I've noticed that the basic principle of headship applies in every culture. But the means of demonstrating it differs from place to place. The important thing is submission of the heart to the Lord and the public manifestation of obedience to God's order. Give me two more minutes. I, uh, or three, um, I, as I told you, I spent all this week and, and I thought, w- What difference is this really going to make? I mean if you're you're sitting here and you may be going through terrible problems and in your life as a wreck and you're in here and there's a sermon about head coverings. So this is what I wrote down, and I'll read it to you so I don't go off on a tangent. When you look at the culture around us, what difference does something like this make? Might it seem trivial? After all, for the past year, the forefront of national news has been about transgender issues and how individuals should have the right to self-identify to whichever gender that person prefers. I remember years ago picking up a textbook that one of my children had while they were attending the University of Georgia. I don't remember the subject matter of the textbook, but I turned to a place that had to do with family and and such and it said there are four genders that caught my attention it said there's male female males who want to be females and females who want to be males now that was several years ago a tsunami has come across since then we are far down the road from that and some think well as long as you've got the right person in the white house Everything's okay. Well, just recently, the Trump administration issued a letter stating that teachers and students can be investigated for civil rights violations if they refuse to use the preferred pronouns of transgender students. For example, if a boy self-identifies as a girl and he's referred to as he by another student or teacher, that student or teacher can be investigated for violating a transgender student's civil rights. So why study 1 Corinthians 11? The reality is every human being knows there are important and necessary differences between men and women. Everybody knows that. Without such recognition, what happens in culture is that women are harmed. It is the women who suffer in such times. And the men become coarsened and hardened. So although culture accepts these ideas, it will not satisfy the human heart. It will not fill up what only Christ can do. So a person can pursue what they want through all sorts of hormonal therapy and surgery And they will still not find the freedom that they are looking for. So how should the church respond? We should never mock or belittle those who are dealing with gender identity issues. We should extend love and patience, but not fall into the trap of accommodating the culture. We should demonstrate what it means to live as male and female, created in God's image. We Christians believe all people are sinners. And all of us are called to repentance. And part of that repentance means to accept the gender God has entrusted to us, even when that may be very difficult for a million different reasons. The gospel is good news for all people. So for those of you that have or will have young children in the future, where does a young boy learn to be a man? In the church, among other Christian men. How does he learn to be a Christian man? How does a young girl learn to be a Christian woman? Not course, Of course in the family, that's the main place, but in the church, in the church body. So maybe, just maybe, the Apostle Paul was dealing what seems to be a very trivial, trite, cultural issue because he knew that in the 21st century in America there is going to be more confusion than ever over what it means to be male or female. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all for the gospel, that you transform us, whether male or female or whatever background we've come from, that we are made one in Christ and there is unity and there is level ground at the foot of the cross. So we pray for hearts of compassion. We pray for hearts of ministry. We pray in our local church that we would have clarity of understanding about these rather complicated and and certainly Uh, against our our cultural uh, issues and reflection. We pray we wouldn't accommodate, but we would be missional and, and seek to reach those who, all of us, who need the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.